Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Lee Carpenter is the author of Ilium, a novel. Lee, by the way, is a good friend of mine. And we went to business school together. Fun story. Before I even started business school, I got an email from the school paper, The Harbus, and it said, we'd love to invite you to write for us when you get to school. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. They know I'm a writer. So I went to the meeting the first day and there were a group of us there, all women. And as we went around, we started saying our names and I said, hi, I'm Zibby. And Lee said, I'm Lee. And someone else said, I'm Betsy. And someone else said, I'm Liz. And the editors of the paper said, we thought we'd try something funny, and we invited all the girls in the grade named Elizabeth. How random is that? 
So anyway, of course, I ended up becoming arts and culture editor of the paper. I had a column and all of that, and uh, it ended up being super helpful for me while I was there to be able to express my feelings. But anyway, Lee and I met that way and became friends when I started writing my very first novel right after school. I would drop off pages of it to Lee and in her lobby and she would read them and edit them and all of that. It ultimately didn't sell, but she was such a huge mentor to me because she had already had so much experience. Lee was my first guest ever on this podcast in April of 2018. She and I sat at the very desk that I'm recording this intro at and had a fabulous chat and I realized that I could get to know her better through podcasting than I got to know her just from being her friend and it completely turned me on to this whole podcast thing and interviewing in general and the intimate conversations I've gotten to have with now 1,700 other people. So thanks to Lee, it all got started, seriously. Okay, here's her bio. Lee Carpenter graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Princeton and has an MBA from Harvard Business School where she was valedictorian. Oh my God, that's amazing. She is a contributing editor at Esquire and has written the screenplay for Mile 22, a film about the CIA's Special Activities Division directed by Peter Berg and starring Mark Wahlberg and John Malkovich. She is developing 11 Days for Television with Lucy Donnelly from Great Gardens and Gideon Rath from Homeland. She lives in New York. Welcome, Lee. Thank you so much for coming back on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This is so surreal that we're doing this again all these years later. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. As I was saying, I I remember so well coming and sitting at this desk Sorry. and think of everything that's happened. It's just incredible. Now I'm sitting here by an army of of awards. I mean, seriously, congratulations. It's so <laughs> <you>. incredible <laughs> what you have built and thinking about your novel, which I loved, as you know, and if you consciously wrote it as almost a metaphor for what you yourself have done. We're not going to talk okay, about my okay, novel. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. If you want me to interview you about your book later, we can. Okay. But congratulations. Oh, thanks. <clears throat> you too. Thank you. Um, we're talking like this. I probably will have said this in the intro, but I won't. But Lee was my very first guest on this podcast, and it was when I sat here interviewing you with my like long list of printed out questions, totally like overprepared, the opposite of today, where I was like, I love this, because I felt like I had gotten to know you in a whole new way, like when we get to sit yes. like this, as opposed to trying to find time for a coffee or something, but like getting a chance to listen to you and your writing and all the stuff, even though I knew a lot of it. Like, this is what I want to do forever. So it's really you. I'm so glad. I'm so <laughs> glad. Thank you for having me back. Okay, Iliam, enough preamble. <laughs> Tell listeners, please, what Iliam is about. Am I pronouncing it right? Iliam. Yeah, Iliam. Okay. Um, Iliam, okay. So the title was kind of in place as a working title for a long time, and then it just stuck. And it came from a series of paintings, a real series of paintings done by the artist Cy Twombly. And that a sort of painting cycle, I think as it's called, is was called 50 Days at Iliam, I-L-I-A-M. And it's Twombly's depiction of the Trojan War. At some point, someone decided that Iliam, I-L-I-A-M, was too obscure, but that Iliam, which really is, is, is the name of the Trojan city, could work. The book is a love story, as you know, but it also, I hope, gets at some of the larger issues of, you know, these what I'll call forever wars. We live and have lived for a long time, maybe forever in an era where wars don't really have neat starts and finishes. And so the book gets a bit into that at the end. But I really wanted a title that sounded strange and exotic because the book is a story of a young woman 
who dreams of a life that's more exotic than the one she has, and who, sure enough, be careful what you wish for, gets pulled into not only a marriage that was very unexpected, but a role where she is sort of the central actor in what is, in the end, effectively a, uh, an assassination, but uh, which begins as a sort of reconnaissance operation where she's sent in to live with, meet originally, and then live with this family in France. And I can tell you about my inspiration for the French family, but, and to get to know them. That's really the only mandate. And what you realize over time is that this French family is not what they appear to be at all. In fact, they are sort of, you know, people, complex people who participated at a very high level in a war in Russia and in Lebanon, and that the whole story that she's been pulled into is a sort of revenge operation for something happened long before the book opened. Wow. Okay, I hope that's not too long. It's not too long. <clears throat> so one of the things that's really interesting is how people get roped into what they are doing, right? The the What is her name? The woman. Yes, she doesn't have a name. Okay, good. I was like, oh my God, how did I forget her name? I'm like, I, I'm bad I'm like with, look how bad I am. I can't remember her I, name. I'm, I'm really bad with naming characters. And somehow in, in this in this instance, I managed to write an entire book where I never gave her a name. And then, and then it sort of worked because she... You know, people will say, and one of the characters says in the book, that the ideal intelligence asset, mm -hmm. someone who, for example, a CIA case officer convinces to spy for us, is someone who's sort of a blank slate mm -hmm. and someone who's very vulnerable. And John le Carré wrote an incredible book, which backdrop of which is the Middle East, so it's also very timely, called The Little Drummer Girl. And in that book, which was very much an inspiration for me in writing Ilium, there's a young actress who becomes a very savvy intelligence asset for, for the Israeli Mossad. And what makes her perfect is she's an actor. She's a trained actress, which is, you know, spies do a lot of acting. So we actually have this big pool of potential spies. Right, we just have to tap into Hollywood. Hollywood. You know. Exactly. You Too could, bad the strikes over. We could have just, you know, that would have been the time. You can be the liaison. Well, yeah, side hustle. Side hustle. <laughs> Hollywood side hustle. <laughs> Patriotism. Well, your unnamed character starts out sort of longing for more than she has. She wants to get into this garden, which is like the locked garden, reminiscent yeah. of Brian, not Brian Park. Down, downtown, like yes. we actually have a garden. Yes, Gramercy Park. Gramercy Park. Gramercy, Gramercy Park. Park. And then ends up marrying Marcus, who yes. owned the garden. And now she's like in it in ways that she never could have imagined. Which which raises the question, you know, was she being surveilled and they knew she wanted the garden, so mm -hmm. they bought it. And that was part of the, the long game of seducing someone to spy for their country. Wow. It goes even further <laughs> back. Oh my gosh. Watch out know, maybe, where you yeah. take your kids yeah. and what what you what what gardens and parks you yeah. frequent. But she quickly becomes you paint her as someone who's just like looking for the missing piece. Right? There's just something she's yeah. longing for. And then she clicks into this other thing. And you have a whole scene with Raj, where there, who is a friend's colleagues yeah. with Marcus, another, you know, espionage CIA person that you don't know right away what his role is, but then you figure it out as he explains it. And the two of them are talking and he basically proposes, if you will, that she become an asset by the time he knows that she will never say no, right? And this is yeah. after she's had one, like, you know, lovely dinner party where she's, like, sneaking into bedrooms and, you know, just getting to know this family. And 
he gets her to a point where it's obvious, like, okay, you should do this. So this grooming, like it's so subtle and yet so effective. And this is like a whole piece of espionage that is obviously the most critical piece. How do you find out all this information? What research did you do? And what do you think about it? I'll start with the easy part of that question, which is the research. I, when I was writing my last book, Red, White, Blue, I had the chance to spend a lot of time talking to one person in particular who had worked at the CIA, not, by the way, uh, Elliot, but someone who'd, who'd worked there, who, who generously gave his time to me to, to really talk to me about the mechanics of espionage and spycraft. And a lot of what Red, White, Blue was, and I don't know if it worked or not as a book, but was my own fascination with really the mechanics. With Ilium, I tried you know, to lean away from that because it actually can be quite boring in the end. It's sort of like when you take your first physics class and it's really exciting and then you think, well, I'd much rather look at a painting. <laughs> no offense to physicists. But from a mechanical standpoint, this sort of, they call it spotting, assessing, and developing of an asset can take a long time. And this person I interviewed for Red, White, Blue said two things I'll never forget. One was, you know... You might spot, assess, and develop an asset with a sandwich in 30 seconds in Afghanistan, whereas in China, you might spot, assess, and develop an asset over 15 years. Hmm. Very different kinds of situations, and one which required this sort of urgent, quick developing. In China, as, as we all now know very well, has been playing a very, very long espionage game. The other thing he said, which I'll never forget, is asking someone to spy for a country is like asking someone to marry you in this way. You only ask the question once, ideally, and you only ask it when you know what the answer is. So by the time you're actually closing the sale, so to speak, you, you should have such a relationship with that person that you know they're, you know they're going to do it. And I thought to myself, what would be the ultimate situation in which you could not say no when you were asked to engage in espionage. And I thought, well, what if your husband asks you to do it? What if it's someone you really love? And not only do they ask you to do it, but they ask you to do it when you know it's a very critical time in their life. When I was reading the book, I leaned over to Kyle and I was like, I think maybe Lee is a spy. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think this is the way, I know you say, you know, you didn't know this about your dad until later and all this stuff, but maybe after business school, <clears throat> this whole like publishing writer thing you've got going is just a, a cover. It would have been, it's funny, as you know, I went to the Paris Review and there was always this sort of, not even a dirty little secret or not even a rumor, but a, but a true element of the DNA of the Paris Review, which was that when it was started in Paris in the 50s, that was a time when we were very focused on these kind of mm, propaganda efforts, espionage propaganda efforts. And we often used as fronts, CIA, not we, but our CIA often used as fronts, cultural organizations. And one of the founders of the Paris Review, Peter Matheson, who of course went on to be not just a great writer, but I think the only living, the only writer ever to have won the National Book Award in both fiction and nonfiction, true hero of mine, had worked at the CIA. And we go through cycles as Americans in how we feel about spies and espionage. Sometimes we think it's cool and glamorous. Sometimes we think it's dirty and something to be condemned. And when 
my recollection is when it kind of came up that people realized that Matheson had been a spy. People were upset about it. It wasn't unlike the way we position our greatest generation of military heroes. A lot of people think, you know, spying is not okay. So back to the the second part of your question, what do I think about it? I think espionage is a, is a layer of how the world works. It's, you know, there's, 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 there's capitalism, there's industry, finance, publishing, creativity, that it's, it's like that quote I sent in, in the notes I sent you, uh, that Cormac McCarthy quote, which is, war has always been there, mm-hmm. the ultimate craft, waiting for the ultimate practitioner, which is man. And I think espionage has probably always been there too. So are there kinder, gentler versions of espionage? Probably. I mean, is TikTok one large espionage operation? Some people think it is. So I think there are a lot of different ways to do it. It does and will involve human beings. And I think in the what I was trying to get at a little bit in the book is when she steps into this role, it's exciting. It takes her away from what her life was. And it's only as she starts to realize some of the darker elements of it and of the truth of why she was really chosen that you you get into some of the moral complexity. I mean, I think it's not, espionage is not for the faint of heart. And what is the kind of person who wants to walk around every day with an identity that's not their real identity? It involves a lot of reckoning with, with, you know, how much truth can you tell the people that you love? And I think when I look at people I know in that line of work who are in our generation, who now have, as we do, teenage kids or still young kids or kids approaching college age, you know, at what point are you going to really talk to your child about the truth of what you do? And and some people can't really say anything. So I think it's it's very complicated stuff. That's I mean, that's why I find it yeah. endlessly fascinating too. And I think that, you know, there was James Bond and there is Jason Bourne and there are Tony Gilroy who claims he never read a Robert Ludlum novel. I don't know if that's true, but who did just like such incredible work with his Bourne trilogy and is an amazing writer. And Tony Gilroy will say that, you know, in in film and television, people always talk about, you know, cracking the story. It's, it's true of novels too, but he'll say that the moment that they, or he gave a speech in which he said the moment in which they cracked Bourne was the moment in which they decided he doesn't know who he is. And that's the heart of who he is, that he has all these skills. And there's a famous scene in the, I think it's the first Bourne that Tony Gilroy did, where he's in a restaurant describing to his girlfriend all the things he knows how to do. You know, I can tell you the license plates of the nine cars parked out in the parking lot. And I can tell you that the guy eating the sandwich at the bar is left-handed and weighs 250 pounds and knows how to handle himself in a fight. And I, you know, he gives this speech at the end of which he says, what is, and I don't know who I am. And so it's kind of morally, born is morally okay, because even though he's an assassin, he doesn't know why, you know? So it was an interesting workaround to make him a hero and a killer at the same mm-hmm. time. And then you have Bond, who, you know, is a killer too, but he also, you know, is a misogynistic, gambling, swashbuckling, you know, uh, a char- very charismatic character. And these are not, nor do they pretend to be 
real portraits of people in espionage who tend to be people you might not even notice if you pass them on the street. And that's when you, that's when the conversation about what espionage is gets into John le Carre and Graham Greene and people who wrote about spies who were bureaucrats and spies who were killers, but not at all glamorous. And I tried to, you know, give, give a little bit of both <laughs> in here, but it's, listen, the, no doubt there's a lot of moral compromise. And the question then becomes, if the moral compromise is for a noble end, you know, doing something good for the country, then then is it okay? And in this story, in this book, uh, Ilium, at the very, very end of the book, as you know, I try and give you, after you've hopefully gotten to know this, this Russian character over the course of the book, I try and tell you his backstory and why he did what he did. And maybe people will come away from the book remembering that part of it. This is the ultimate, there are two sides to every story. Yeah. Right? And you might as well just write them both. <laughs> Meanwhile, my background, like you're referencing all these, you know, past spies. Do you remember the movie Spies Like Us from the 80s? Of course. Oh, my gosh. And, like, Chevy Chase with, like, the big, you know, fur coat yes. like, in the snow and everything. This is, this is my reference. Chevy book. Chase and Dan Aykroyd. Was it Dan Aykroyd? Yes. So nobody, funny. I mean, nobody's better than Chevy Chase. The idea of Chevy <laughs> Chase as a spy. I think we have to watch um, it again. Was Bill Murray in that too? There was somebody else. Maybe it was. Um, no, maybe the Ed, Howard Howard Ramis. Maybe was he in that? Yeah. Well, then that would have been like the, no, go, the Ghostbusters was, gang. Maybe it was Bill Murray. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, um, yes. So listen, there's a long history of people glamorizing or sending up or taking down people who do this kind of work, and it's fun to look at it from all different angles. And are there two sides to every story? Maybe, maybe not. But in this case, I wanted to say each one of the people brought into this long plan because at the end of the day, it's, you know, the, the brief backstory of the book is that a group of guys who, when they were in there, when they were very young, were in Beirut and one of them died. And many, 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 many years later, a plan comes together to have revenge for that killing. But each one of them sort of got into it for love and underlying all the other reasons is their love for each other. You know, their, their kind of band of brothers bond that they have, which I think is, is real, you know, and you, you don't have to go into a, a war to see it. I mean, you and I see it probably with, with the men we know, and it's just a natural human instinct to want to protect, protect the thing you love. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, I feel like at its heart, Ilium is exploring what it means to like get to the heart of why someone is doing something and understand people's motivations when there are so many secrets. And I feel like with you and your dad, and maybe, I don't know, you don't have to talk about it, but finding out your dad was an espionage after he passed away and your close relationship and reverence for him that is so just, you know, permeates everything that you do, including using his name, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like you are literally searching to understand how someone you love so closely could be involved in this. And what does it mean when someone you love so dearly keeps secrets from you, right? I feel like it's like a mental exercise of like, well, what could that look like? Do you, what do you think? I think, you know, my dad died before I ever wrote anything and so never saw that I would become a writer, ironically, which was sort of his dream for me, but I never would have had the guts to try to do, you know, and then you, you go through a loss like that and it's sort of like, why not? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I definitely see that, although it's cliched, I definitely see he died and I and and everything changed. And if I look back on the last decade, because I started writing, you know, 11 years ago, and people say, you know, why do you keep going back to war and espionage and these, these subjects? I guess now, within hindsight, I can say, I've probably been looking for my dad for 11 years. I didn't see it that way. What I saw was, you know, I want to take on a tough subject. You know, I want to take on, as I put it, you know, genres filled with books by men, for men, and about men, you know, and maybe I can enter them differently. And I don't think these have been sexist genres. I just think they've been genres that have not naturally been ones that men are drawn to more than women. So as you know, starting with 11 days, I tried to do that. With my father, you know, because I was born when he was older, I never thought by the time I was old enough to have a conversation with him, by the time I was a teenager, it never would have occurred to me to say, you know, what were you like 50 years ago? And that's why, also why I encourage folks we know and in, in, in our generation who have been in these lines of work, and especially if they are necessarily sort of covert lines of work, hey, keep a journal because you may never write a book about this or write a memoir about this. But one day, one of your kids is going to say, wait, you were in Fallujah in 04? You were in Syria in 07? You were in, you know, I mean, there's, there's, the world is such a complex place and there are people working in all these environments now, Kiev, you know, Tel Aviv. And won't you want to be able to say in 40 years, because better or worse, like the memory, you know, all of our memories 
fade? Won't you be able to say with real clarity what happened? If I could, if I could have one day back with my dad and ask him about the some of these experiences he had. You know, the CIA was put together by a group of guys who came out of World War II and was very much a new kind of organism, right? We didn't have a foreign intelligence service. And now some people say we don't have a domestic intelligence <laughs> service, but we have um but it was it was built by guys who came out of military and military intelligence, which was what my dad did was a uh, it sounds like the most, you know, it sounds like quantum physics or something, like really not that accessible a topic. But all it is is is, you know, you know, the marriage of 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 espionage and, and and war work. So yeah, but I'm hoping that this book in particular, because I put a woman at the center, will open some of the magic of those worlds and raise some of the questions, but really at the end of the day be be her story and her love story and how she did it for love. You know, people say that people choose to commit espionage for money or for their personal ideology or worldview or because of their ego. You know, it's kind of like cool to be a spy or go around, you know, engaging in this stuff. And I wanted to see if I could tell a story that was plausible where she only does it for none of those reasons, but rather because she fell in love. Wow. So you said in terms of your writing style that the secret is restraint. And I flash back to when you were helping me write what never ended up getting published right after business school. And I would send you my drafts and you were like, no exclamation marks. <laughs> I think that be, you're like, we don't need exclamation marks in literature. And I was that's, like, that, that's so funny that I said that then because, yeah. um, did you think that was terrible? Well, no, but I, I was that. like, I put exclamation marks all the time in everything, you know? And I was like, okay, a world without exclamation points. And I literally think of you all the time when I put them in. And then to hear you say, you know, restrained, because your prose is so, it's so, like, specific. And the way you talk and the sentences are, like, perfect. And it has, like, a pacing that's just perfect. And it's not, like sprawling. It's like very directed and beautiful. So how do you do that? Thank you for saying that. Well, huh, I mean, Shelly Wanger, Shelly Wanger, Shelly Wanger, Shelly Wanger is my editor at Knopf. Shelly took on 11 days when it was, I think, maybe 40,000 words. It was, it was a dream of what something could be. And I've worked with her for 10 years very closely. And Shelly is the greatest gift that could have happened to me in my career. She's, I've learned so much from her and she is herself quite restrained. She has so many terrific authors she's worked with up to and including Joan Didion. And the reason I mentioned Joan Didion is that when I delivered Ilium, Shelley said in her inimitably very low-key self-deprecating way, she said, you know, I've, I've removed some of the conjunctions. <laughs> you know, Hadn't becomes had not, can't becomes cannot, you know, that kind of a thing. And she said, but don't, please feel free to put them back in. And that led to a conversation about conjunctions in which she said, well, you know, Joan Didion really felt that conjunctions are for journalism, not for literature. Hmm. You know, and she'll, 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 she'll say something like that so gently. And then I think, oh my God, I'm never going to do another one again. Ever, ever. <laughs> like, not breaking, God forbid I break, I break the Joan Didion rule. But, um, but no, I think cause Shelley has helped me see the value of, 
I guess, I guess restraint is, is the right word since I used it, but <laughs> every book I've ever delivered to her has become what it has ultimately become because she has helped me understand what, what I can remove. I mean, she does a lot of other things too, but, and I think that's its own kind of art. This book is very short, which I hope makes it readable, but it's also, you know, I admire, I admire the other kinds of writing. I'm not really as capable of doing them, but I think it's, I tried here, here's the other thing, to plot it. Mm. I spent a lot of time during the pandemic trying to adapt Red, White, Blue as a, as a feature film. And for that, I worked with a company called The Ink Factory. They're totally terrific. And The Ink Factory was started by the sons of John le Carre. Mm. And so they do all of the le Carre projects. They just, and, one of the sons announced a new book, like, this week or something. Oh, really? Yeah, it's coming out. They just announced it Friday, I want to say. Really recently that he has a new book coming out. Alex? Oh, I haven't seen Alex that. Something? Well, there's Stephen and Simon run the Ink Factory, and there's a younger son who edited Le Carre's letters. Oh, I, I, him. I bet love, it's him. Okay. Nick, maybe? Yes. Nick. Yes. Okay. I'd love to I'd love to look at that. Um, yeah, and he I don't know if he writes under a different name, but he um It's like Nick Haraway? Yes. Okay. So David Cornwell was the real name of the author. His pen name was John Le Carre. And, but I learned so much working on that project about what kind of architecturally makes a piece of espionage work for Le Carre or for anyone. And I learned so much about story from Stephen Cornwell and uh, talking to his, his associate, Michelle Walkoff there. And, and they, they really helped me see how I don't write plot very well, <laughs> I think is a way to put it. And I was absolutely hell-bent on finding the plot of this book. I thought this book is going to have a beginning and a middle and an end. She's going to be called on a mission. She's going to go on the mission. She's going to complete the mission. And then she's going to reflect back on the mission. I'm literally going to do two plus two equals four if it kills me. Because as you know, with 11 Days in Red, White, Blue, and I don't know, sometimes I think it is laziness. Sometimes I think it is fear. It might be a combination of the two. But writing something that's very plotless and sort of free of things like timelines is my default mode. And I had to get discipline to to do this. And I and I and I hope it works. Because I do it think I do works. thank you. I do think, you know, newsflash after you know, thousands of years of literature and 10 years trying to write, there's a reason that people respond to classically written stories. You know, it's, I always, I teach this class now at Columbia and I tell my students, you know, Aristotle's poetics is basically, you know, keeping people's, it's, it's you know, attention capturing for dummies. <laughs> it is how you hold someone's attention. And guess what? How do you hold someone's attention? You use the classical principles of story, you know, and it's, it's all there in the poetics, which you can read in 20 minutes. And it's really about bringing someone in and using character and plot to hold their attention. So mm. that was, that was the goal here. Wow. Part of the goal. So <laughs> cool. Speaking of keeping people's attention, often people's attention wanders to watching things on TV versus reading or like, I don't have time for this or whatever, but you're going to have this be, this is an Apple project, right? Yes. Tell me what the status is. That was a very weaving way of bringing that in. But anyway, tell, what's the status of this and what is going on with Red, White, Blue? Is um, that going to be on, what happened yes. with the adaptation? Um, what is your film story? So 
what is going on with Ilium is that the filmmaker, the incredible, incredible, incredible filmmaker, Alfonso Cuaron, has optioned the book for Apple. And I am not writing the project. And I am so excited to see what it looks like. And they are working on the script. I think that's where it is now. What's going on with Red, White, Blue? I'm adapting it. It's very, you know... I'm really new to film and television, as you know, and it is, it is humbling, right? You throw a thousand things at the wall and maybe one sticks. I had the outrageously strange experience of writing a screenplay that got made. The first thing I wrote, which got made into a film, as you know, and after that happened, I remember my agent said, well, that's never happening again. You know, in, in, in his, um, my agent Paul Haas, in his inimitably sweet but candid way you know it's that business for as a writer is so much about doing doing as much as you can and learning and having humility that it's it's so rare that something gets made as you well know from your brother and, and your husband so I am trying to adapt both 11 days and red white blue finally I've like gotten away from my fear of that so I am working on both of those projects now so I'll let you know wow I'll let you know if where those eggs thrown at the wall <laughs> end up. But I'm in both cases, I'm working with people I really admire. So, Last question. As a mom, if, you, if one of your boys said they wanted to go into espionage, how would you feel about that? Complicated. You know, in, I was just working on a scene for, for the 11 Days adaptation the other day in which the mother and a son, that book is really about a mother and a son, <laughs> And in this scene, the mother, Sarah, and her son, Jason, are sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, a place I've spent a lot of time and done a lot of (laughs) deep thinking, uh, and steps on which I have sat with, with the children. And he tells her, you know, look, I'm I'm going away. I'm taking this job. And she's very upset about it. And he says, this is what I want to do. You know, this is... This is totally riskless. Mm -hmm. And she herself, having had a career in espionage, says, you know, that's always what they tell you. That's how they get you in. Mm -hmm. And they the argument builds until he finally says, it's so hypocritical of you to criticize my choice when this is what you did and this is what you loved. And Mm -hmm. she says, it's exactly because this is what I did in love that I'm in a position to choose. So I think parenting is... Speaking of humbling activities, <laughs> also defined by a kind of internal hypocrisy, right? Because we want to safeguard and protect them long after we are able to, or maybe even meant to. So I think it would, the short answer is it would depend. You know, is he sitting at a desk in Virginia or is he going into um, one of these conflict zones? I would hope if one of the kids came to me and said that, that I would be supportive. But the real game is not a novel, as we all know. And uh, I think it I think it would probably be worrisome. You know, you want your kids in environments that you understand. And international espionage is the definition of an environment that you necessarily cannot understand unless you're working in it. So, you know, luckily now at this point, Vale, you know, won't even disclose the name of a girlfriend <laughs> if, he, if he has one. So he's well on his way to being a trained trained in the art in the art of espionage. But I I think it'd be very complicated. You know, I think my father, I found a letter. I mean, there are thousands of letters, but one of the letters that I found after he died that he had written home to his father during the war said 
effectively, you know, Dad, I'm realizing that the more people want to tell you about all of the covert work they're engaged in, the less covert work they're engaged in. Mm. And that the people who are really doing the work never, ever talk about it. Hmm. And I remember reading that and thinking that remains true. Wow. Well, Lee, congratulations. Another unbelievable, wonderful book with so much art to it. And the plot piece is amazing too this time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but all of it is just wonderful. Thank you so much, Debbie. All of it is, you're such a pro and I've admired you for so long in your writing. And this is just another example of how fabulous it is. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for supporting me, your friendship, everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.